Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us, that love with which you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we might be with you forever. Please give us more understanding into your plan, that we might know you better and walk rightly with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 2001, the Lord of the Rings, the first of the trilogy, came out. Anybody remember going to watch that? I think I was freshly out of college. And um, I had started to read the books back when I was young. I think I probably got about 50 pages in and stopped. But I knew enough about the books to know that it was a series of books, that it was... um, just like the movie was coming out in a trilogy, which I think I knew that when I went to see the first movie, uh, but there, there were many books as well. So I show up at this first movie just knowing a, a tiny little bit about the movie. And the movie, the first one, spends a lot of time on plot development and, and character development. So they're, they're telling you what the ring is and how they have to plan to destroy the ring so that they can defeat the forces of evil. And they gather this, this fellowship. I think that's the name of the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. So there are hobbits and dwarves and men and elves, and they're all teaming up together to be able to stop the forces of evil. And, and like I said, they're, they're doing a lot of plot development. And I kind of have an internal clock going on in my brain as I'm sitting there watching that first movie. And I know it's about a three-hour-long movie, but I'm starting to think to myself, we're like two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes into this, and they're just getting together, and they're nowhere near the place where they're going to destroy that ring. And I'm thinking to myself, they better hurry up and get going. And just as I'm thinking that, the credits start rolling. <laughs> I'm like, that's not an ending. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's a trilogy. There's, there's more movies that are to, to come after it. So no, it wasn't an ending. Well, now there's even more of those movies that have come out because they've come out with the prequels. I don't even know how many. What are there, like two or 17 of them or something? It would take you like four days to watch all of them, I think. But, uh, so I want you to imagine just, just picking up one of these movies somewhere in the series and uh, you, you've heard nothing about it or you don't know anything about what's going on and you just pick one of the movies. Should you expect to be able to understand all that's going on in that movie? For instance, if you picked the the second of the first trilogy, you'd probably wonder, what are all these people doing? Why is this ring so important? Why are men and elves and hobbits together? I don't get it. Well, in some ways, that illustration can feel like the way that we approach the Bible. Now, for some people, the Bible is so long that they don't even bother starting it. For others, the Bible can feel very confusing. Where do you start? In fact, I would say that for most of us, we started with the New Testament. Uh, maybe some of you are different on that, but I'm guessing that most of us started our introduction into the Bible with some sort of story about Jesus. And, and rightly so. That's not the wrong way for us to, to begin to look at the Bible. And perhaps what's happened over the years is that we've gained a certain amount of fluency in the New Testament. But what about our overall understanding of the big picture of the Bible? Is there something lacking there? I once heard a pastor say that he doesn't preach the Old Testament because he doesn't understand it very well. Now, I say that not to shame that pastor. I say that to encourage you all that if you feel like you don't understand the Old Testament as well as you should, you're in good company. But let's not stop there. So for about the next four months here at Cornerstone, we're going to do a project. 
we're going to do an overview of the Bible. We're going to try to get the big picture of the storyline of the Bible by looking at some of the most important passages in the Bible. And we're going to spend most of this time looking at the Old Testament. And along the way, what I want to do is show you how these Old Testament themes and storylines show up again in the New Testament and have tremendous meaning for our lives. So one of the goals of this series is that we would all grow in our understanding of the Bible. But even more than that, I want us to grow in faith and love for the God who has revealed himself to us. You see, the God who created the universe and the God who created you has given us a book. Did you know that the word Bible simply means book? I think a lot of you know that, but I think that's just a a fun little piece of trivia. The word Bible just simply means book. And in fact, the Bible is, in one way to look at it, the Bible is 66 books. And I think that that's where some of this confusion comes in, some of this, boy, I don't understand. Uh, Who here can tell me, you know, exactly what the book of Malachi is about? I, I think for all of us there's a sense of, wow, I don't understand all 66 of the books. But what I want to do with this project is to help you see it as one story. There is one story that God has been working in his creation and in us ever since he created. And it's a wonderful story. And I want us to get to know that story better. So as part of this project, I hope that you'll read the Bible. And perhaps right now is a a time where you might want to make a commitment to having a Bible reading plan. I sent out an email earlier this week where I challenged you with that. Maybe 2017 is the year for some of you where you say, this is the year that I will read the Bible in a year. Now, I've never really done a Bible in a year program. I have my own program that I really like of reading through the Bible. It's a simple one. I read a book of the Bible, and when I'm done with it, I put a little check mark next to it in the table of contents. And in that way, I can see which books I've read, and I walk through the entire Bible that way. And I don't set myself a a time pattern for it. I just read through it. But I, I would love for you all to come up with your own plan and stick with it. Because it's, it's one thing to come and listen to a sermon series, but you all know that you'll get much more out of it if you're chewing on this yourselves. Okay, so let's start with our project. Um, what we're going to do overall in the project, like I said, I'm going to pick out some important passages in the Bible and give an overview of the Bible by doing it that way. Today we're going to start with the beginning and the end. We're going to start by looking at the first three chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters, and we're going, to kind of, we're going to look at three big themes that show up in those two parts of the Bible. And in doing so, it'll give us a sense of who God is, who we are, what we're doing here, and where we'll want to live forever. In that email I sent out earlier this week, I gave you a homework assignment, and I'll, I'll just refresh your memories for those of you that are uh, still catching up on your homework. It's only the first week, and some of you are already behind, I'm guessing. Ah, oh, come on. The homework assignment is that you would read the first three and the last two chapters of the Bible, and as you're doing it, just a chart with two columns. On one side it says similarities, and on the other side it says differences. And as you're reading the two parts of the Bible, I want you to notice notice how they're similar and how they're different. For those of you that want to work ahead, next week's homework assignment, we're going to look at Abraham. And I want you to, Abraham is a character from the Old Testament, And I want you to look in the New Testament, research every place that Abraham shows up in the New Testament. We'll learn a lot about uh, God's story by doing that. But for today, uh, we're going to look at the first three and the last two chapters of the Bible. I'm not going to read them all today. I'll assume that you will all do your homework right, okay? 
But you see, the Bible has a great way of helping us understand life. And what you'll see in these first three and last two chapters is the framing of this story. And we learn so many important things, like I said, about who God is and who we are. In fact, um, this is something fun that you might want to do. This could be like extra credit homework assignment. Come up with a, a one-sentence description of the Bible. Some, somebody comes up to you and says, what's the Bible about? You get one sentence. What would you say it's about? Uh, I tweeted mine earlier this week, for those of you who are following Cornerstone Church on Twitter. Um, it's my one-sentence description of the Bible. For his glory, God's plan is to save us and make us holy so that we can live with him forever. Anywhere you read in the Bible, somehow I think it fits into that overarching story of what God is doing to save us, to make us holy for his glory so that we can live with him forever. But how that happens is a long story and it's a story that not everyone understands and I want us to get better at that. So that's what we're going to do over the course of this project. And again, today we're going to look at three themes. The first of those three themes is creation. So let's start in the beginning. The first three verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Those verses are familiar, but oh so important. In them we learn that God was there in the beginning. He was not created. That means that, that he is set apart from everything and everyone else in creation. It's part of what makes him God. He was not created. And we also learn how the universe came into existence here. It came because God spoke it into existence. So how powerful is God in his word that he speaks and it comes to be? So don't miss how important this is. Just right here in the first three verses of the Bible, we know who God is and we know how we got here. Now I'm pretty interested in science and what other people propose as what happened at the beginning of the universe. And you know what? Aside from a supernatural creator, there is no good explanation for, for how we got here. And I think scientists are actually admitting this. They don't know. They, they proposed that all the way back in the beginning there was a, a big bang that came from an infinitesimally small matter, but they don't know where that came from. And they would rightly admit that they don't know it. And, and they might say, oh, well, we'll figure it out later, or oh, we can't know. But we know, in the beginning, God created the universe. He spoke. Now, why would we dismiss God? What, what good reason do we have for suggesting, oh no, that's not the answer, when we are told at the very beginning of the Bible that that's how it happened? I think we have the answer here. Let's look at a few more things about creation. You know how it goes. For six days, God created stuff, and during those six days, God said that it was good. It says God saw that it was good. But then we get to the sixth day, and something different happens, because when God created man and woman, he created them in his image. That means, in many ways, that we are like God. Now, Genesis 1 doesn't unpack all of what that means, that we are created in the image of God, but what it means is that we have purpose and worth because God made us in many ways to be like him, to reflect his image in this universe. And at the end of it then, after God created man and woman, he didn't just say that it was good like it had been for the previous six days. He said at the end, after creating man and woman, that it was very good. 
So God created paradise. He created the Garden of Eden, which just simply means the Garden of Delight. He created a wonderful place for man and woman to live, to have all that they needed, and to have fellowship with God. And then just a few more things about creation. Um, first, God didn't just make creation and then let it go on its own. That's what some people think. Oh yeah, maybe God started it all, but he just kind of let it go. No. What happened right after God created? What did he do? He talked to Adam and Eve. Our God is a talking God. We have a book full of his words to us because he wants us to know him. Then second, part of God's very good creation was that he gave Adam and Eve work to do. Even before things went south, or east, east of Eden is what it went, even before it went bad, God gave them work to do. So work is a good thing. Sometimes we think that work is a necessary evil, but work actually existed before the fall of man, and we'll talk about that later. But then another thing I want to mention, that humans were created for community. Let me read 2.18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now I find something fascinating in this verse. I think that one of the reasons that it's not good for man to be alone is because we were created in the image of God. And we believe in one God... But we believe in that one God, as we, as we flip through the pages of the Bible, we see him revealed in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Since eternity past, God has lived in perfect community. So when he created man and he first created Adam and there was no Eve yet, God said there was something missing because we were created to have fellowship with each other as well as fellowship with God. And then one last thing about creation. In Revelation 21, we'll see new creation. But before we get there, we're going to see that something terrible happened to the first creation. But God will make it new. And, and when we get to Revelation 21, we're going to see God recreating and making things good and new and perfect again. But let's move on to our second theme now, which is the fall. To sum this up, let's look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, or to begin this, I should say. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So the Garden of Eden was paradise. It was a delight. Adam and Eve had all that they needed. God provided for them. But there was one command, one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it doesn't take long. It's just the next chapter when we see Adam and Eve doing the very thing they were told not to do. Let's read the story. Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. That's what we talked about during communion. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So in this story, we see deception 
and temptation. We see that Adam and Eve had two choices. There are two paths. And so often the Bible frames it this way. There are two paths. One is the one that God has for us, and one is the one that leads to death and to hell. It's the one that Satan would tempt us to go on. The serpent is the one who tempted here. And later on in the Bible, we see that that serpent is Satan. He lied here. And, and notice his lie, and you all know this, I think. He didn't come with a full-on frontal attack asking Adam and Eve to deny God. No, he, he deceived them, trying to convince Adam and Eve that God was withholding something good. Knowledge of good and evil. And when you think about it that way, why would God withhold knowledge from his creation? But that's not the right way to see this, because God told them not to eat of it. And when Adam and Eve ate of it, they did gain knowledge of good and evil. And in one sense, what Satan said happened. They became like God in that they had this knowledge of good and this knowledge of evil. God knows about good. God knows about evil. But there's something also very different. Adam and Eve now participated in evil by their actions. They thought that they could become like God, making their own rules. And you know what? I, I want to I speak to your hearts right now. That's a perfect description of what happens when we fall into temptation and sin. We make up our own rules. When we sin, we come up with some sort of excuse as to why it's okay for us to be doing this thing that God has told us not to do. Now, do we think that we know better than God? If I were to ask any one of you that question today, you would give me the right answer. No, I don't know better than God. But when we sin, we replace his standards with our standards. It's a form of idolatry in which we pretend to be God. Do you get what's going on here inside of our hearts? We pretend to have the moral authority, not just to distinguish between good and evil, but to actually decide what is good and what is evil. Do you get the difference there? God has given us the capacity in wisdom to be able to know what's right and to know what's wrong, but we should never be the ones who assume that we get to decide what is right and what is wrong. Only God has that right. So know that about your sin, that whenever we sin, it's because we're coming up with our own standard. So how should God respond to this act of rebellion? Well, he already said how he would respond. He already said back in 2.17 that death would be the result. Let's look at that death. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So that's the first part of it. There was now separation between God and man like there never had been before. So part of the death is spiritual separation from God. We were created to be with God, but sin causes separation. It always does. And there's more. In 3.19, as God was pronouncing the punishment on Adam for his sin, he said there at the end, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's talking about physical death. So taken together, what we see here as a result of sin, there's spiritual separation from God, and there's physical death. And unless God steps in, the consequences would be eternal We'll see later on in the Bible that we could never pay off the penalty that we had earned by our sin. Left to ourselves, we would be stuck in death forever, separated from God, and on course for eternal hell. And that's not all. There's even more. After Adam and Eve's sin, God pronounced a curse on the serpent, and as well as on Adam and Eve. 
Other parts of that curse include, in Genesis 3.16, pain in childbearing. Now, I have witnessed that four times, and it doesn't look pleasant, um, as some of you know firsthand about that pain. And there's also something really sad in that verse. I think the last part of that verse implies that there will be difficulty in marriage. So think about that. When sin came into the world, difficulty in marriage came with it. How many times has that been repeated over and over and over and over in our world? And we're getting worse at it. It came because of sin. And there's even more. In 3.17, God told Adam that the ground would be cursed and that his work would be painful. Anybody ever experienced pain in work? And it's still not it. There's more. After God pronounced the curse, he banished Adam and Eve from the garden. And here's what he said in verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Fellowship with God was broken. Adam and Eve no longer had access to the Garden of Eden and their relationship with God was hindered. Sin marred what had been perfect. Life came from God, but death came as a result of sin, as judgment from God. And we live in a world badly marred by that sin. Who of us here has never said, oh, I wish that things would be different? And, uh, raise your hand if you've ever said that. Oh, I wish that things would be different. Do you know why we say that? Because our sin has messed things up and we long for things to be made right. But we live in this world now that is cursed and we live in a world that is marred by our sin. And our relationship with God is hindered and our relationships with each other are damaged. And it's not just out there that we see the bad things happen. It's not just the accounts that we see on the news. And it's not even just that our bodies deteriorate and die. It's our sin that causes the problems. Our sin has damaged and even broken relationships, including a relationship with God. Now, after Genesis 3, um, have you ever read the Bible and thought, man, that's awful? You read about something? I've, there have been times where I've almost been sickened to see what God's people are doing. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Bible is a sickening book, but I'm, I'm just suggesting that the Bible accurately depicts what happens when we follow a path of sin. And our response, by the way, when we feel like that shouldn't be, man, how could they do that? Just like our response shouldn't be to blame Adam and Eve because every single one of us joined in with them in their sin. We should see that we have all contributed to this problem. There, there's a funny story in this book. I'm going to hold up this book. Um, this is a book. I sent an email link to it. It's called The God Who Is There by D.A. Carson. It walks through a bunch of the passages that we're going to be walking through in our sermon series. Um, some of you may want to buy this book. But if there's a funny story in there. Uh, a newspaper in London asked some famous writers in England to contribute and answer the question, What's wrong with the world? Okay? So they, wa they wanted to get the best minds in all of England to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, a famous author, wrote, I'll read his entire response to you. Here it is. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Isn't that great? 
What's wrong with the world? I am. It was our sin that got us into this mess. It's our sin that continues to cause problems. Sin destroys. Now, we all long for things to be made right. And the good news is that God will do that. D.A. Carson says in that book, what we need the most is to be reconciled to God. And that's exactly what God does. Because in the rest of the Bible, God is bringing about a plan by which he will restore us and redeem us so that we can live with him forever. The curse was bad, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So let's move on to point number three, which is redemption. And if you don't know what that word redemption means, it means to be bought back or to be set free. I just mentioned how the curse wasn't as bad as it could have been. Well, most theologians see right within the curse in Genesis 3 a foreshadowing of the gospel. And I want to read for you Genesis 3.15. So this is part of the curse that God gave to the serpent. It says, And I will put enmity, or hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So this verse explains to us why we feel this mess, why we, we still live in a world in which things go wrong. Part of it is because there is hostility between Satan and the woman, and also between his offspring and hers. We are the offspring of the woman. We human beings are the offspring of Eve. And there is a spiritual war going on between Satan and those who follow him and us. But then look at the last part of that. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The, the you in that verse is referring to Jesus. Because the offspring there, this, this is just a, a little interesting language note here. The word offspring, whether we're talking in English or in Hebrew, like this verse was written in originally, offspring can be either singular or plural. So in one sense, we, plural, are the offspring of Eve. But... This can also be a singular word here. It's the word offspring or the word seed, and it refers to Jesus Christ because Eve had a kid who had a kid who had a kid all the way until Mary had Jesus. And Jesus is the offspring of the woman. So, you in that last line there is Jesus, and he or his in that last line is Satan. Now we can see this in the cross. You will strike his heel. Excuse me, I'm sorry. The you is Satan in this one. Okay. Let me get, let me, I just want to make sure that we're clear on who Satan is and who Jesus is. Okay, if you're not, please come and talk with me afterwards. Okay. Satan will strike the heel of Jesus. And we can think about on that cross, Jesus was most likely nailed through his foot or his heel region with nails, and he died from it. But we know the rest of the story. Death could not hold him. Death could not keep him. He rose again victorious, and he is the one who gave the fatal crushing blow to the head of Satan. And in doing so, Jesus earned victory for all who would put their faith in him. And we can say, along with 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through, Je through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus now lives forever, and in him, we too can live forever. In Jesus, the damaging effects of sin can be overturned. And the last two chapters of the, of the Bible describe what that will be like. Let me read the first three verses of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So the same God who created the Garden of Eden will recreate a perfect place for us to live with him. And it says right there in verse 3, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. I've said here many times and I'll say it again, the biggest blessing that the Bible reveals to us is the blessing of God with us. And in heaven, it will be perfectly restored. That fellowship that was broken in the Garden of Eden will be restored in the new heavens and the new earth. And through faith in Jesus, we can have that. In fact, I would even say that through faith in Jesus, we can have a, a taste of that. And not just a taste, but we can, we can live with God even right now. Even though we don't see him face to face, we can have a God with us sort of relationship right now, but the fullest fulfillment of that awaits for us in heaven when we walk with him face to face. We'll walk by sight. Okay, so there's redemption because we'll get to live with God, and there's even more. In 21.4 it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Death came with sin, but in heaven it will be no more. Death will be gone. Praise the Lord for that. And with the removal of death is also the removal of pain. So think about that. All that pain that we've experienced in life, whether that's in childbearing or in work, or the pain of a broken relationship, or the pain of death, it'll all be gone. Now what's interesting, pain in work will go away, but work itself will not go away. Remember how I said that God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the Garden of Eden? Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be work as well. In chapter 22, it talks about how God's servants will serve him in heaven. So, work, which used to be really good in the Garden of Eden, and then w became painful due to the curse and due to our sin, will be restored and our work will be a joy again. When we get to heaven, we will have meaningful work to do that will bring us purpose and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction, and it will bring glory to God. I wonder what your job will be in heaven. And by the way, this should inform how we work now, because work in itself isn't bad. Sometimes we view it as a necessary evil, but I want you to know that the work that you do can bring honor and glory to God. And when you do it as if working for God and not just doing it to honor your boss or not just doing it to get by, not just doing it even to make a paycheck, we can honor God. And I think, uh, maybe I'm the only one on this, but I don't think so because I feel like I've seen it in other people as well. I think human nature is to want to get out of work. Am I right? I want, I want you to analyze your heart a little bit in this. Have you ever tried to get out of work? Whether that's you expecting that your spouse will do the dishes, or whether it's you cutting corners at your job, or whether it's you uh, not doing the homework that you were supposed to do, even at church. <laughs> Who would ever know? Um, it's human nature to want to get out of work. But remember, God created work, and we can give him glory by doing it. And we don't just have to wait until heaven for that. We can do that now. God will redeem it eventually, but we can even live in a foretaste of that right now. Okay, but let's look at some more. Remember in Genesis 3, God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. They could not eat from the tree of life, lest they live forever in their sinful state. 
But after we have been cleansed of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, access is now reopened for us into the new heavens and the new earth where the tree of life is. So that's one of the similarities as you're comparing and contrasting the first three and the last two chapters of the Bible. The tree of life is opened to us and we are invited. And then another one, in uh, 22.3, it says, no longer will there be any curse. And, and this is, can we just all give a sigh of relief at this one? Say, ah, everybody do that with me, okay? No longer will there be any curse in heaven. It'll be wonderful. And again, that's the verse where it says his servants will serve him. Everything will be made right now, there's one more part about redemption that I want to say. I, I promise you that I have tried to make this sermon shorter. You, some of you may think I'm not doing a very good job at that, but uh, there's stuff that I cut out. But there's one more thing that I want to say on redemption, because it's super important. In Revelation 21 and 22, it is very clear that only some will gain entrance into the new heavens and the new earth. It describes what will happen inside heaven, but it also says that some will not enter. It says that some will find their place in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the same place Satan was thrown into in chapter 20 for his rebellion. So we have two options. Either we get to spend eternity with God or in the place that God has reserved for Satan and his enemies. And we're told who gets to spend eternity with God. In 21.7, it's for those who overcome. Those who overcome in the book of Revelation are those who keep walking with Jesus. In 21.27, it says that those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter. We get our name written in that book by receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. In 22.14, it says that those who enter are those whose robes are washed white. They can only be washed white in the blood of Jesus. So if you have received Jesus, you have life. Now we've all sinned. We were all separated from God. We had all chosen a path that led away from God and towards death and towards hell. But through Jesus, we can be redeemed and brought back into a perfect, eternal relationship with God. But have you received Jesus? The whole story of the Bible points to this important idea that we must receive Jesus if we are to receive life. On our own, we'd be apart from God forever, but in Christ, we can be restored. And near the end of Revelation, one of the very last verses in Revelation, it's an invitation. It repeats the word, come, 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 and get the free gift through Jesus Christ. So you see, God is at work. God is the God who created, and when we fell, there was punishment for that, but God is the God who will redeem and restore. Our part is to join with God in that process. And throughout the, the rest of our project that we're going to do here, I want us to know more about who God is and more about his plan and how we can join with him. But I want to conclude this story now by wrapping up the three points that I made. And I want to use a story. Does anybody remember the year 1992? Okay, raise your hand if you have any memory. It was an election year. I'll refresh your memory. We had uh, the incumbent George H.W. Bush versus the, the up-and-comer Bill Clinton. Do you remember there was a third one in that? Ross Perot, the independent. Okay? So... The, uh, during the vice presidential debate, Ross Perot, he had, it was kind of comical, he had just about a week before the debate picked his vice presidential candidates. And yes, okay, you're, you'll be the guy, you go up there and debate these polished politicians. So he picked General uh, Jim Stockdale, or excuse me, Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was admittedly underprepared for this. 
And he gets up on the debate stage, and when asked for his opening statement, Admiral Stockdale said famously, Who am I? Why am I here? And he meant it as a joke, because people didn't really know who he was and why he was there. But over the course of the debate, he kind of got the idea that he didn't really know why he was there. He was underprepared for it. <laughs> but those two questions that he asked, Who am I? Why am I here? are so important. And if we don't know the answers to those questions, we don't know much of anything. And, and I'd just like to add a third question into the mix of it. Why do bad things happen? So we're, we're going to just quickly look at those three questions here. The first one, who am I? We know. We were created by God. We aren't gods, nor are we left to our own to wander aimlessly through life. God created us as his image bearers and gave us meaningful work to do. It's only as we recognize who God is and who we are in light of him that we will understand who we are. Think about how many people in this world, every single person in this world, wants to be fulfilled, to find happiness and meaning and satisfaction. Well, we will only truly find those things as we understand who we are. We were created by God. Second, why do bad things happen? We know it's sin. What's wrong with this world? I am. It's not that the world is against us. It's not that there are some good people and some bad people, and if we try hard enough, we can sort it all out and we can get more good. You see, we've all sinned, and there are severe consequences for our sin, most notably spiritual separation from God and death. And you know what? The world has no answers for them. We might be able to delay, met, excuse me, to delay death through medicine or surgery or healthy living or things like that, but the world has not come up with a solution for death. And apart from what God did through Jesus Christ, there is no solution to our separation from God. And remember that the sin problem isn't just out there, it's a problem for us as well as we continue to make bad choices. Because sin always causes problems. But God restores. And that leads to the last question, why am I here? We're here because God wants to have an everlasting relationship with us. We were created to live in holiness and righteousness forever. We were created to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, where we stand right now, those are commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said they were the two most important commands in the law. And right now, they're difficult for us, but God will strengthen us in the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things. But I want to encourage you with something. Think about heaven now. Think about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to know that those two things will be the perfect existence of our eternal reality. Always loving God. Always loving our neighbor as ourselves. It'll be perfect. That's what we were created for to love God and to love others. Now one day, God will make everything new. He'll remove the curse. But right now, we struggle with sin. We struggle in this world marred by death and the curse. But those who know Jesus will get to live with him in the perfect place. Until then, I want you to see that God has a plan that he will restore and redeem and make us increasingly more and more like Jesus Christ. He will grow us in holiness as we walk with him in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And that will happen as we get to know God and his word better. So I hope you keep coming back as we walk through this series where we're going to look at what God has been up to in his word, what he has given to us, that we might know it, that we might grow in our faith, that we might grow in our love for God and our fellow man. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have a plan. A plan to save us from sin and death. A plan to make us holy, to make us more like Christ. A plan to allow us to live with you forever in the perfect place. And God, all of that will be for your glory. Thank you, God, for what you are doing. We pray that we would join with you in your work. We pray that we would be people who get to know you better by getting to know your word better. And I pray that it wouldn't just be an academic experience for us, but that we would truly grow in faith in love and in hope as we get to know you better. So God, please guide us in this. May we honor you with the way that we continue to seek you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.